Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the South China Morning Post. We're going to be bouncing around the world today as we take in the latest murmurings in Europe, Washington, Beijing and even Moscow. In Brussels last night, members of the European Parliament voted to put the EU-China investment deal in the freezer. Essentially, that means they've blocked any debate about ratification of this deal, while China's sanctions on a group of European officials, diplomats, academics and researchers remain in place. That was a clear-cut vote, folks. It was 599 votes for, 30 against, with 58 abstentions. Then on Monday, the United States Senate advanced a bill that would provide billions of dollars in government funding for technology research. This is part of a broader legislative effort to counter China. The chamber voted 84 to 11 on that one to move ahead with the Endless Frontier Act, introduced by Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer. Another landslide. All the while, China is finding itself more isolated and there are some suggestions that it is turning to its old sparring partner come ally, Russia. On Thursday, Russia's ambassador to London, Andrei Kalin, told Reuters that G7 is playing a dangerous game by making aggressive criticism of the Kremlin because it pushes Russia closer to China. What a roster we've got to discuss these topics today. In part one, we will have our US correspondent Mark Magnier on the line from somewhere north of Washington. He wasn't quite specific with where he was, along with our own Joe Shin right here in Hong Kong. In part two, I'll speak with the head of the European Parliament's Trade Committee and veteran MEP Bernd Lang about the very clear direction of travel in the Europe-China relationship. Just a quick personal note before we move on. This is my last episode as the host of this podcast, which we've been doing in some form or other for about two years now, and what a ride it's been. I'm packing my trunk and heading off to Brussels next week to report on Europe's changing relations with China. I'll check in from time to time to keep you updated on all that good stuff. Someone else will be taking the hot seat here in Hong Kong. I'd just like to say a quick thank you to the man who every week makes this possible, our producer, Mr. Jared Watt, to John Carter, Joe Shin, and all the guests we've had over the years who have been so generous with their time, and to those who've listened to us waffle on each week. It's been an honour, but enough of that sup, on with the show. Joined on the line today by Mark Manier, our US correspondent, and Joe Shin, our political economy editor, who is in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us today, guys. It's been another busy week. I was up late last night covering the European affairs of the EU-China investment deal. This is the Common Agreement on Investment, which was effectively 
dead in the water. It was killed by the MEPs last night who voted to put it in the freezer in the parlance of European bureaucrats. This essentially means they will refuse to debate this deal, to discuss it or to ratify it in the Parliament, which means it can't go anywhere. This was signed to great fanfare in December, the second last day of December by Xi Jinping, Angela Merkel and uh, Emmanuel Macron, as well as EU leaders. And it's taken just five months Five months for the uh, MEPs to dismantle uh, that great plan. And Joe Shane, I wanted to turn to you first on this. We've discussed it previously on the podcast. It's obviously something China wanted to do, to, uh, you know, invested some political capital in this. What's your sense on how this will be greeted in Beijing this morning? Well, I think this is definitely being a big disappointment uh, for Beijing because this is uh, certainly a setback for uh, China's plan, you know, we can do business with the European Union while we can put aside uh, issues of human rights in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. And then uh, the European actually responded, you know, it's uh, under the current, at least, the European political structure, it's not possible for China to achieve this strategic goal. And also, as you said, you know, it's five months ago, it's, uh, it's assigned, you know, the Biden was just new in the White House. So Beijing takes this as a strategic move. And if the U.S. is going to be hostile to China, that's fine, as long as China can have, you know, be friended with Europe and be friended with everyone else, then China would be okay. But now it seems the situation is not uh, going down exactly the direction that Beijing is hopeful. Mm. And uh, for now, uh, really, uh, there's, uh, as you said, you know, the deal is dead because from the Chinese side, there's no way for. China say, okay, okay. So if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want the sanctions, we can lift the sanctions so that we can reopen the deal. It would be uh, unthinkable for Beijing because a doing so would mean that China agree to link the uh, investment and trade issue with the human rights uh, issue, which is against the Beijing's principle, basically. Mm. And b if this started, and then Beijing will have endless trouble, right? It's almost, and and most most importantly, China cannot show weakness. On this front, it will be a disaster at home because if uh, the Chinese government is seen as uh, uh, bending its own principles to entertain the U.S. interests. And as we discussed before, this uh, investment deal uh, for Chinese government is not one-sided like a, a grace from the Europe to the Chinese. It is also, China has also made uh, great uh, compromises in sometimes the market opening and stuff like that. You know, there are also eternal debate whether China really should uh, given given away these kind of conditions or concessions to to the European side, and I heard that you know the final conclusion is that uh, the strategic value for China to reach an uh, agreement with Europe outweighs uh, the potential costs. That's why uh, Beijing you know went ahead. So now basically you know China tried hard to reach the deal, but the deal is now dead. So this is a this is a really something like. Uh, 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 a disappointment for, for the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. And let's see what will happen next. But one thing is for sure that uh, the China-European relationship will never be like before. Yeah, and Joshin, I just wanted to ask you a quick follow-up on that. Uh, when I speak to um, European officials, diplomats and so on, they say that if China wanted to, de- to design um, some sort of a tool 
that would ensure that the agreement would not be ratified. It would look very much like those retaliatory sanctions which they slapped on some of the biggest mouths in Europe with regard to the uh, China relationship, um, a policy-making body in the Political Security Committee. These are the Sherpas who basically make all the laws in the European Union, which are then okayed by um, by EU leaders and foreign ministers, uh, sanctioned the, you know, the Subcommittee on Human Rights at the European Parliament. All these people who were... They knew we were going to make a lot of noise. Um, I, and in my conversations with contacts and sources, have been trying to understand what was the Chinese calculus there because it was quite clear that if they did this, then the European Parliament would definitely not ratify the deal. And China must have known that. So I wonder what you think about that. Like, what, what, what would be the explanation behind that? Well, I'm not... I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I think China, uh, maybe I, I don't know, but maybe China has has a strategic miscalculation again. Just to, just like Beijing has miscalculated the political wings in Washington a few years ago, because according to the uh, historic historical pattern, it's always like uh, there are always some some members in the in the parliament saying something that nasty about China. So China saying, oh, it's okay, and and then you know if this deal is with the political will from the, the heavyweights like Merkel, like Macron. And Beijing had the reason to believe that maybe we have the chance. You know, we, we have the chance to push push it through. Yeah. So, yes, it is a little bit surprising to see uh, the Chinese government responded so angrily about the sanctions uh, uh, on, on the Europeans. You know, when the, the European sanction in China is quite targeted, but when China hits back, it's quite uh, uh, it's quite broad. And also even, even including a uh, well-respected think tank. But I still think that Beijing had forecasted this. Uh, this might be a, a little bit problematic. I think there's a serious mistake within the Chinese government. They have at least miscalculated some parts. Uh, Mark Manier in, in, in the United States, um, you know, is this a big deal over there? Are people watching uh, Europe? Do you think that the Biden administration is keeping a close eye on how this is unfolding? And I suppose if you look at the the, the landslide of this vote, it was 599 uh, for the motions to stop the CHI, uh 30 against and 58 abstentions. So, Mark, they must be looking at this and thinking, well, this is this is looking pretty good for our coalition. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a few things are happening here. One is that certainly I think China has not done itself any favors uh, with its foreign policy issues, which seem to become more and more tin ear with not a lot of recognition on how things might be received. The analysis more and more is that they're doing this largely for their domestic constituencies. Um, but at some point, you also have to think a bit about how the rest of the world sees it. I think that's one. I think the investment agreement also was negotiated. Well, it's been negotiated since, you know, for eight, eight or so years. But I think the last parts of it, which are always when the uh, most difficult issues are battened out, happened when it was still relatively unclear whether Trump might be reelected, in which case there was enough poking in the eye by the Trump administration of its traditional allies that Europe may have had a little bit of uh, uh, kind of a, an approach to play the US and China a little more off against each other. Now that we're back to the traditional playbook that we've seen since uh, World War II, with uh, transatlantic relations uh, and Biden putting a great deal of effort into that. I think that makes it um, more aligned combined with what uh, some of the um, attitude that we've seen coming out of Beijing. 
Um, and the fact that this is doing on the economic side what uh, what Biden has vowed to do, to work very hard uh, to try to uh, marshal those who are frustrated with some of Beijing's non-market activities and um, targeting of key industries and try to bring together those uh, forces, which of course is, we've seen from the reaction, is making Beijing quite nervous and feeling like it's being ring-fenced. Yeah. Mark, there's some sense uh, from when I speak to um, uh, officials and diplomats in Europe, Germany is is one. Uh, <clears throat> of course, we've got the election coming up in there, there in September, which could really change the lay of the land uh, with, with regard geopolitics globally. But there's a sense that with Biden, because his policies are similar to Trump on China, but he says them with a smile and with the air of multilateralism, they say that he's harder to say no to. But the policies are still not any any more easy to, to swallow. Um, you know, so, so the Germans and others are, have been quite concerned about this. They feel like Biden is being very aggressive. They feel like they're under pressure to somewhat meet him in the middle because, uh, you know, they are craving this multilateralism just as, as he is presenting. Is this, a, do you think, an intentional tactic? Um, you know, everybody sort of realised that things wouldn't go back to normal straight away once Biden came into office. But, you know, this, this heavy-handedness and this very, very aggressive um, pursuit of coalitions on China. Is that something you think they're, they're doing on very, very intentionally? I might push back on that a little bit. I, in foreign policy and in international trade policy, I think charm only goes so far. I think, you know, you're, uh, ultimately it is about national interests. And I, I think, you know, there's perhaps some meeting of the minds that some of this has to be done. But then I think uh, you have to look at at Biden's domestic uh, balancing act also. You know, he has a very, very thin uh, operating majority um, in in Congress, uh, in the Senate. Everything comes down to, uh, you know, a single Democratic senator disagreeing. And this is a very, very tricky thing when you get to states like Pennsylvania, you know, uh, West Virginia, coal mining, steel making uh, places. And then I think also strategically, you know, he's he's got some political cover because Trump uh, put these draconian policies in and then he doesn't necessarily, well, he doesn't get, uh, they don't have his name on them, but then he can use that as leverage as we've seen with China and with Europe. And I guess the third point is that, you know, uh, with all this talk of, great friendship and everything. There, there have always been problems in the transatlantic relationships, you know, or with Canada or with any of the closest allies, uh, Korea or Japan. It, it's never easy. And to some extent, having uh, a an alignment of the mind toward Beijing doesn't mask the fact that you've still got these underlying issues that haven't gone away. There was a story earlier in the week by your colleague Jody who um, reported on comments by the former USTR under Bill Clinton, Charlene Bershevsky, saying that uh, Europe will never really be the ally that, that the US wants. It has its own vested interests and so on. Um, uh, Bershevsky reportedly turned down the um, the job of uh, ambassador to China. So very, some very strident views there. Mark, do you think that's fairly representative of the sort of uh, political elite in, in Washington? Um, I, I guess she may have, uh, you know, some maneuvering on her career involved. I, I do not. That does not strike me as being necessarily representative. 
Um, I, I think, as I said, I look at it more as though there have always been problems. Uh, on balance, the two sides can work it out. But, you know, mud fights over Boeing and Airbus have been going on forever. Uh, agricultural policy, um, th- these, these issues are very much under there, particularly at a time when, you know, the global economy is still staggering and everybody's trying to get on their feet and, and you, you know, you have uh, a number of other issues. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's some massive turning away in short. I wanted to just bring Joe Shane in on uh, maybe a, a coalition that China is building on its own. Um, we have seen uh, so, some 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 more of this bromance between Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin emerge this week, with various ministers saying uh, that the G7 risks pushing Russia further into China's arms. Joe Shin, how credible is this alliance? Is you know it's obviously not going to be the be all and end all for China, but is it something that it's uh, seriously focused on? Well. Uh, thing, but I think the G7 group, as a stance, is pushing China and Russia closer. That's uh, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, because uh, we, we, if we if you remember, I mean, uh, 2017 when uh, she um, went to the Davos uh, World Economic Forum talk about multilateralism. And by that time, Chinese government still has this uh, um, hope of that there will be at least some kind of you know multilateralism that China can. Uh, keep it, uh, keep it throwing it uh, business as usual, but in the last couple of years, it's increasingly like okay, the, the you know the U.S. led Western allies are not going to entertain China's uh, uh, wish to keep the business as usual as old the multilateralism. So China has to find its own friends. And you know after the after the um, uh, Alaska meeting, uh, Wang Yi immediately had this uh, meeting with uh, Russia, with uh, South Korean. Uh, with Singapore and a few other Southeast Asia uh, foreign ministers. And it's it already showed very clearly to Beijing that it has to do its uh, own part of forming, uh, whether, it, whether you like it or not, its own kind of a sphere or, uh, or its own uh, quasi-coalition. Mm-hmm. And Russia is definitely, you know, a natural choice. Yeah. Indeed. One one final point before we we, we finish up, chaps. The um, the U.S. Senate on Monday advanced a bill that would provide billions of dollars in government funding for tech research as part of a broader legislative effort to con- to counter China. Uh, this is known as the Frontier Act, the Endless Frontier Act. It's brought uh, forward by the Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer. Mark, uh, this is uh, the latest in a long line of uh, of stuff that the U.S. has been trying to do on China. How significant is this in the grand scheme of things? And where does it fit in with the other legislative tools? I think, in my mind, you have to look at it a couple of different ways. One is how effective is it when you gush enormous amounts of federal dollars into these programs? And I think the the jury is out when you look at what the U.S. Uh, government tried to do with semiconductors uh, in a, a generation or earlier with the Semitech uh, quasi-government uh, private entity that it created in Texas to counter Japan when it looked like Japan was going to take over the world. It, the, the record is very mixed on that. But I think there's another factor in all this, which is that democracies in general, and I think the U.S. in particular, often need um, they need certain forces to come to bear in order to build consensus and to uh, bring discipline to, to, to an effort. And so I think we're probably in, in part in that, which can include 
revamping the education system eventually so that um, we, we have the tech workers, hopefully at some point even, you know, getting Americans to, to learn Mandarin, um, which has been pretty abysmal. Um, it's just, you know, <laughs> love them or hate them. You, you need to talk to them. It's just, you look at the, uh, you look at the figures for American kids going overseas and there's, you know, I don't know, slightly more than 10,000 and most of them go off to, uh, France and Italy to drink wine. <laughs> um, so, so I think that there's some of that going on, but, uh, you know, I think it's also, it's a way, as I said, to, I think to really start looking at some of the U.S. problems. You know, it's easy to blame um, to, to blame China, uh, but there, I think the Biden administration has uh, wisely pointed out, even if I think it hasn't, the American people haven't quite grappled with it, is that we have a lot of issues ourselves. And, you know, to, we need to uh, get better at a lot of things. We need to be more disciplined. The U.S. has to you know, focus on what matters. I think that this is part of what we're seeing, I think, through this act and through some of the money that we're going to uh, be putting into strategic industries and education and some of these other efforts. Yeah, throwing it all at the wall, see what sticks. Just to finish up, it's been two years since we've been running this podcast, more than two years, in fact, um, in various iterations. Um, things have changed a lot since then. Mark, I think this time two years ago, you and I were enjoying cold beer in Wan Chai. <laughs> <laughs> in the pawn, uh, you know, when you when you when you checked in with hit with HQ, but I just think that the pace of change has been breakneck since then. I mean, uh, I know it's hard to take stock sometimes, but I mean, where do you set? How do you assess? Like, um, you know, how crazy things have become. Uh, obviously, nobody really seen everything coming, but but Mark, how was your crystal ball gazing back then? Well, uh, uh, the it was filtered through the beer glass that I was looking at you, at, um, which was always, which is a mixed blessing. But uh, yeah, to to your point, I mean, uh, it is just incredibly difficult to imagine sort of what we have been through, both the latter years of the Trump administration when uh, the trade war became more and more blistering. And then uh, Trump papered through a deal at the end that uh, promised all sorts of things and has quickly uh, fallen apart. And then, you know, Biden's election and attempts to grapple with a, a rising China and do it in a different way using uh, sort of multilateral strategy, um, the up and down. Um, it's, it's just been yeah, phenomenal. Joe Shin, you and I have been sat in this studio almost every Friday <laughs> talking about <laughs> these issues every week, but it's still hard to, I suppose, take, st- take, take stock. Like, you don't see the wood for the trees oftentimes when you're, when you're reporting on, on things as they happen. Um, how do you see those, uh, the, 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 these last two years from, from the Chinese perspective? I mean, China is in a much different position, I guess, than it was when we started this thing. Yeah, on the, on the one hand, I think China was seeing it stronger. And as a famous line, you know, China is on the east is on the rise, the west is on a decline. This is a certainly this is a certainly the assumption Beijing has, and this is also the basic as uh, a foundation of many of its uh, uh, policies. But at the same time, it also sees the uh, world will be increasingly uh, hostile and volatile and uh, more um, harsh towards China. So this will also make China more defensive. So more we can see like how the U.S. led uh, the Western allies is trying to push China to follow these national rules. The more we are going to see how China is going to hit back with its own strengths and its own way. For instance, 
uh, if uh, the, the U.S. has some sanctions against China, maybe China will say, OK, let's try to have our own ways to sanction some U.S. business. It has not reached that stage yet, but I think increasingly we will see uh, this kind of tit-for-tat uh, rivalry. And this is not good for the overall world. No, certainly not. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a roller coaster. Thanks for riding it. We'll be back in a couple of weeks in a different guise. But until then, Mark Magnier, Joshin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Next up, you're going to hear some snippets from a conversation I had earlier this week with German MEP Bern Lang. Lang is a senior MEP from the Socialists and Democrats grouping. He's in the Social Democratic Party of Germany. And I'd say his views are fairly mainstream and representative. So hearing what he has to say on China is a fairly accurate finger on the pulse for swathes of the political community in Germany and Europe at large. I started off by asking him about the shift in how China is viewed in the European Union and specifically Germany over the past few months. I think uh, in the last month, uh, the uh, necessity for having a proper China strategy has dramatically increased for several reasons. We had the pandemic with uh, some crashes in supply uh, change, then uh, the uh, economic balance, uh, the uh, development of China in the last years, and the forecast for the uh, GDP in the next 10 years. So there are several elements where now a lot of people uh, got a wake-up call. And now uh, we are in a situation where we have to really look what are the proper elements for a strategy uh, which brings us in a situation where we can act in our economic, politic uh, interest uh, so that uh, we have a perspective for a cooperative uh, future. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose... um the major change coming later this year that everybody's looking out for is in Germany and the change in, in, in Chancellor. Um, how much of an impact do you think that is going to have on the overall dynamic? Uh, perhaps Ger- Germany has been a sponsor of quite convivial relations with China. Obviously, the commercial as- aspects are very important. Do you think that the exit of Mrs. Merkel will lead to a lot of um, reviewing of this? And, and what direction do you see that going in? Well, uh, I have not my crystal ball here with me, Uh, (laughs) but uh, of course, but I guess even in uh, uh, the party of uh, Miss Merkel and even with Merkel herself, uh, there's also this uh, reflection how to deal uh, with China. Of course, there are a lot of economic um, uh, thinking was... was, uh, Uh, in in, in front of of a a lot of other uh, reflections, Uh, but even this has uh, changed. No, uh, we have to be uh, clear uh, what's going on. We have the the situation of a 
different globalized world. We have a different geoeconomic situation. And of course, uh, the question of values and the question of human rights, labor rights, as also an element of uh, fair competition has to be raised as well. So uh, mm. therefore, I think, yeah, there will be a, a change, but I guess it will be in the concert of the European Union. Yes. And you're not, uh, as your policy paper lays out, you're not advocating isolationism. You do, you're not, you're not advocating decoupling. This is something that the United States has been a big debate for the last four or five years now. Europe, it's a word I hear more often um, these days, uh, decoupling. I don't know how possible it is, but uh, explain, uh, Mr. Lang, what, what, what's your, what's your issue with this? Is, is it something that you just think is not possible or, or, or not uh, desirable? Uh, of course, several elements are relevant for that. First of all, economically, is it really possible in a world of really globalized supply chain to decouple one country from this whole system? We have made an exercise on analyzing the direct uh, dependencies with China and looking in the amount from, I guess, 180 roundabout critical products, only a few of them are really dependent on only one country. And even in this new industrial strategy by uh, Mr. Breton, Commissioner Breton, mm-hmm. you see that only some sectors have a, a specific dependency and not even all of them towards China. So even if you have such a, a perspective in your mind, it will be economically really not fit in because the complexity of supply chain is really uh, much more developed. Uh, secondly, we need China as a global partner, regardless the political system, regardless the geopolitical, geoeconomic uh, interests of China. We need China in the WTO and other international organization. And therefore, some kinds of cooperation is necessary. And thirdly, what effect will such a try of uh, decoupling have in China? I think, and this is my experience, with a lot of uh, partners in the uh, history, that the try to isolate, to decouple, will stabilize mechanism which should be under discussion if we have the possibilities to uh, find some ways of cooperation. So um, this is, I think, quite evident that uh, an isolation will be only uh, strengthen uh, structures which will not uh, improve the multilateral system. Yeah. So three valid arguments, I guess, uh, not to go for uh, decoupling and, and isolation. Bear in mind, this conversation happened before Thursday night's vote about putting the EU-China investment deal in the freezer, but it was certainly on the cards. Uh, Lang himself had discussed it beforehand, and I asked him whether it was unusual for a single foreign policy issue such as this to unite the European Parliament in the way that it has. Of course, sometimes Parliament is united, not to the 
proposal for the due diligence. So we got 504 votes out of 700. That's really uh, amazing. So, but nevertheless, uh, it is, uh, shows that the question of value is now really a cross-party issue. And this is, of course, linked uh, to the attempt uh, towards China as well. And um, then now we are looking on the different elements as we wrote um, in the paper as well. So we will have, of course, some, some cooperative elements uh, specifically regarding the WTO, but perhaps also regarding the fight against climate change. So there are elements, but of course, we have also some unilateral measures which uh, are now on the table, the IPI legislation, which will come soon, the uh, anti-subsidies legislation, the due diligence. Um, so there are different elements and I'm totally uh, convinced that um, the freeze will uh, not be open before all the elements will be uh, um, uh, in force or near to force so that this overall package is uh, ready. Yeah, the, the commission's quite consistent and when it talks about its toolkit for de dealing with China, I guess those are some of the elements that you're referring to. I mean, do you see an, a, a time in the future when... Well, let, let me let me uh, sort of rephrase that slightly. We may see a more confrontational period with China. I think that the government in Beijing hasn't really reacted well to confrontation from other sides in the past. You look at the situation with Australia, um, the trade war with the United States, which, um, you know, it's it, it's gotten quite vicious at times. Um, you know, if the European Union um, is to sort of take a more confrontational approach a competitive approach, uh, you know, considering China as a rival. Um, do you envisage a moment, a, a time when, when China can have this conversation and not react in an incredibly negative way, as we've seen with with its engagements with some other rivals? You mentioned the case of Australia in your in your paper. Is this a, an instructive example for you? China is quite strong and uh... The Communist Party is quite self-confident. Look to the Party Congress and uh, the speech uh, from some high-ranking members making clear that uh, China is now talking to the Western world on the same level, uh, not uh, as a uh, in German, they, they call it Bauern, not, not a, as an easy agriculture man anymore. And this we have to respect. And it is a case that China is much more powerful economically, politically, military uh, than uh, some years ago. And uh, therefore, we have to resharpen our uh, relations uh, regarding uh, this fact. And of course, uh, they are sometimes quite, quite uh, brutal in uh, defending their interests. But nevertheless, of course, we see, see also other countries uh, doing it uh, in a similar way. And uh, this is, I think, in a, in a, in a multilateral rules-based uh, system, not acceptable. And this we have to mention also quite clearly. 
I finished off by asking him about Hungary's blocking of European Union resolutions on Hong Kong, something Budapest has done for a couple of months in a row now, which we discussed on the last few podcasts. You can go back and listen to those. But also, how important are these issues, foreign policy issues essentially, around Hong Kong and China to the average German or European? On the European uh, side, as you mentioned, that of course not always uh, in front Policy and security policy, we have uh, uh, one voice and one interest. And specifically, Hungary is not really acting in the, in the same direction uh, than a lot of member states are doing. And we have the problem with unanimity in foreign policy. That's a big challenge, and we have to change it. Um, and of course, China is also playing the game, no, no doubt about, with this 17 plus one. China called it one plus 17, or the one vote and one belt initiative, and so on and so on. This is geopolitics and geoeconomics. And we have, as I mentioned before, we have to react uh, uh, to that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's playing a role in, in the discussion um, in the constituency about uh, the values, about um, Hong Kong, uh, the uh, situation of the Ukrainian people. This is mentioned specifically regarding the responsibility of European companies. So this is, I guess, really vital uh, in the thinking of, of the people. Thanks for listening to this week's China Geopolitics podcast. I've been Finbar Birmingham, and this is me signing off. This podcast is going to have a two-week break, but we'll be back with Joe Sin, John Carter, and all the other guys better than ever. Thanks for sticking with us. Stay safe. Au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios. And as we say in the old country, slango foil. You make your hand into a fist and slam it down. Just have we missed a weasel slipping past us again. With not so much as a slant of while, yo, where'd you go and what about you? Gone to bed to rest his head without a fairly well on his way. Without a fairly well on his way Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.